Welcome to The Scrap Show, a production of Recycling Today. Covering the business of scrap metal recycling, we feature conversations about markets, technology, the industry's rich history, and the traditions and ways of doing business that stay reliably familiar. Listen in as guests from across the country and around the world, processors, traders, and industry allies provide insights and observations. The Scrap Show, a conversation between friends in an industry with a rich history and a bright future. Hello, everyone. It's Brian Taylor, Senior Editor with the Recycling Today Media Group, and welcome to The Scrap Show. As our podcast name boldly states, we're here to talk about scrap recycling. Each episode, I'm just asking the questions, and someone smarter than me will provide some answers. Today, that smart person, I'm very happy to say, is Don Zulanch, recently retired from the Ohio-based Cohen Recycling Organization. Don started at Cohen in 1968 and retired not too long ago, just a couple of years ago. So I think that's going to give us plenty to talk about, considering how much can change in 50 years. Don, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. It's a great pleasure to have you. And let's begin at the beginning, as is sometimes said, how and where and when did you get your start in the scrap business? Well, my dad was in the scrap business uh, in Dayton, Ohio, mm. and I worked for him through high school okay. and uh, a little bit through in college. When I graduated college, I took a job in a big retail operation, uh, department store for a couple of years, but then I went with my dad and my brother and I spent uh, two years there. Okay. In, 19, in 1968, 68. I left my dad and brother. Uh, I had no job and uh, I just looked around. I wanted to do something else. And somebody recommended that I go to Middletown, Ohio and talk to a guy named Wilbur Cohen. Wilbur this was 1968. Okay. That was, be that was before you were born. It was um, not quite, Don. I was, I was, yeah, I I know, was just about but, every year uh, in kindergarten, though. That gives you some reference. I remember the day I, I stopped in and Wilbur Cohen said, uh, yeah, you have a little experience. He said, let's try it for six months, <laughs> six months and see what happens. Uh -huh. And uh, 40, 47 years later, we, uh, we shook hands and hugged again and, and I retired. All right. My gosh. Oh, that's uh, that's a that's a great story. When yeah. you, when you started so a year after the summer of love, it was the summer of scrap for for Don Zulash. And what what did what was your first? What did they throw at you as your first responsibility? What was your first task in the scrap business? Well, we had a very small, very small operation. We had one one yard in Middletown, Ohio. Okay. And we had an office with just two rooms. We had a girl in one room, a secretary, and Wilbur and I shared a desk uh, in his <laughs> office. Oh and gosh. he used to say, uh, you know, why don't you just go around and see what's going on, where the scrap is generated, you know, what we could do to maybe expand our business and, and just get a feel of what's going on. Okay. He didn't push me. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't put any pressure on me. Mm -hmm. uh, we just had a relationship, you know, it lasted longer than most marriages last, really. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, he, the, the big thing was that he he said at the time, you're part of our family, and, mm -hmm. and I was. Okay. I was invited to all their weddings and bar mitzvahs and all, all, all good things, but I was part of their family, and I felt, I felt good about every year that I spent there. Every year, I felt right. good. What was Wilbur like as a leader? Uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's obviously the one who hired you, so you have good memories of him, but in terms of 
managing the company. What were some of the you know things he taught you that stuck with you that you had kind of carried with you for forty-seven years? Well, I mean, he was smart. Uh, he didn't he didn't push you. Uh, he wanted you to uh, excel in what you did and how you did it. But he was he was just a, a great man, mm-hmm. and you wanted to work for him. You wanted to do better for yourself and for him and for the company. Okay. And again, I never dreamt that we would end up with so many yards and uh-huh, so many right. tons that we were processing in my life. I, I never dreamt that. And it was just going to be him and I in this small operation you know, forever. And it, it just exploded. I guess that's the next question to ask. By the time you left around 2015, if my math is right, what was the, how big was Cohen at that? How many yards did you have? What kind of tonnage without giving away any? You know, company secrets. What kind of tonnage were you? Well, we had we had twenty three yards, twenty three in four states. Mm-hmm. We were in Ohio, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Indiana. All right. And we were at one time we were the eleventh largest scrap processor in the country. And then the mills started buying scrap yards and buying mm-hmm. and consolidating. Right. You know, and right. then a lot of the people, you know, like Omni got bigger and bigger. You know, going into uh, steel mills and things like that. But yeah. we were. We were very satisfied uh, with what we did. Ken Cohen came into the business uh, mm-hmm. probably four or five years after I did. That was uh-huh. Wilbur's son. Okay. And he he was instrumental in uh, expanding the operation to 23 yards. Right. Okay. He was very, very instrumental. Very. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Rosa, you got to work as well with the next generation of Cohens and, and Cohen family members before you left. I did, and also the next generation after that. That's Kenny's amazing. son came in, and his nephew came in. Right. And uh, it was, again, it was just expanding our family business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was still a family of 23 yards. Wow. It was still a family of all the tons that we were shipping in this country to China, overseas, Turkey, all over. It was still a family business, and we felt that way. We weren't owned by anybody. Yeah. We weren't, you know, mandated by a steel mill, told mm-hmm. what to do or where to ship. We right. did it on our own. Yeah, that's certainly one of the things that did not change. I'm sure you're happy to say over over 47 years. But I guess the, among the things that did change, I'm certain, I'm going to take a pretty educated guess, would have been the manufacturing sector in the Ohio Valley. I mean, wh- where did you, where was your scrap coming from in 1968? You know, what kind of man- industrial generators were there out there? And what was left in 2015? You know, how, how did that change? Well, I, I'm not sure. You know, every, every industry changes. Every industry changes. We we serviced a lot of a lot of industrial companies. A lot. Right. We had our own trucks mostly to pick up scrap. We had used our own people, so we were able to uh, mandate to our people how to do it, what to do. We, we right. controlled everything. Okay. We didn't have outside truckers picking it up. Uh, again, we, we mandated when they should do it and how they should do it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we didn't have a lot, a lot of changes. It just got to be real big. And uh, it got to be a little different at the end because when you're dealing with 23 yards and over 500 people, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it changes the, uh, you know, what, the, what happens. Sure. Sure. Well, what about on the steel side? Who were the big steel makers in 1968, 1969 in, in Southern Ohio and surrounding states? What were the big names in, in steel mills at well, that point? Well, in Middletown, Ohio, we had AK Steel, Armco right. Steel. 
Armco Steel, AK Steel, and mm -hmm. they were a half a mile away from our yard. Now yeah. they didn't they didn't own us and we didn't sell them everything. And they mm -hmm. were they treated us like another customer. We treated them like another vendor. Okay. We were a vendor to them and you know, we would ship US Steel, we right. ship, you know, Nucor, you know, uh, you know, all, all, all over. I mean, our scrap went to China, our scrap went to Turkey, okay. our scrap went wherever wherever we could get the best price for it. Sure. And uh, we made it. We made a good package. We had a great name in the industry, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I, I I just think it was forty seven great years for me. We never we never struggled like some people are doing now. The times were completely completely different than they are now. Uh huh. Did you, when the EAF mills started to be built, especially in Indiana, a lot of EAF capacity came online, um, kind of in the middle of your career, I guess. Did that change the way Cohen had to prepare scrap and process it? Did they want different grades or was it, you know, was, were the changes, processing changes, not necessarily linked to that? Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't think so. We only, we shipped to steel mills and we had some foundry business. Mm -hmm. So our foundry business was different. Okay. We did prepare a lot differently, smaller, cleaner, better, you know, but the night, probably 80% of our, our business was mill business. Okay. And that didn't change a lot. Uh -huh. uh, you know, we had different kind of mills that came in that wanted different type of material and we prepared the way they wanted it prepared. Okay. And, you know, we, we just did it on a steady basis and they could rely on us. The people that we sold to could rely on getting the scrap that they wanted and they needed. Mm -hmm all the time yeah it didn't take long for me to start writing about scrap metal before i would pick up on the sometimes there would be some adversarial relationships between steel makers and scrap processors does did you find that to be the case a lot or do you think part of your mission was to 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 ease any kind of adversarial relationship or what, what can you say about that in terms of do they have to be well, adversaries Early on, there was no adversarial uh, relationship because the steel mills did not own any scrapyards. Mm -hmm. I mean, they yeah. were steel mills doing steel. Now, yeah. now they own scrapyards. And so there is a competitive nature between the scrap yards and steel mills because they're competing with us. Yeah. They're asking us to sell them scrap and they're competing with us. Right. So right. that doesn't make a lot of sense, but you just have to put that in the equation. Sure. That's what yeah, happens. That's become pretty prevalent, especially in the region, your old operating region. I mean, two of the two of those right. examples exactly. right there. Mm. Right. And then we had a, a good relationship with a lot of scrapyards that went uh, were owned by uh, steel mills. Okay. And that changed, as you know, uh, you know, yeah. some of the larger scrapyards that we had a great relationship with. Mm -hmm. it, it was over with because those owners were gone and the new mm -hmm. owners was a steel mill and they had a different vision. Okay. So, you know, we adjusted to that, but it was, it was very difficult, very difficult. What do you think, uh, what are some of the relationships you look back on in your 47 years of people, whether they were colleagues or whether they were with other companies you had to either trade with or even, you know, maybe came across at ISRI chapter meetings? Who are some folks that you, you know, you think fondly of that you worked with all those years? Well, um, Nick Oliveri uh, was Omnisource, and he's still there. I think he's mm -hmm. 90 years old. I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he's still with Omnisource. We work very closely together. Um, 
uh, well, I don't know. Um, I, I, I just, I had, I had, my business was based on a relationship mm-hmm. and I had relationships with the steel mills and the buyers all through my career because okay. that was the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Relationship to us was more important than pricing okay. because they would come to us because of the relationship and buy from us first. Mm-hmm. And it, it always didn't work out because the shipping and cost and price, but we had the relationship where we could talk to them okay. and, and, okay. and they understood us and we understood them. And when we had meetings every morning, we used to talk about our relationships with our customers and our vendors and the people that we did business with. That okay. was the most important thing in our business was relationships. Was that something that happened at Cohen throughout your years there? But the day would start with a, almost a, with a meeting and people ex- just getting caught up on each other's essentially you know activities. At seven, at seven o'clock in the morning, I ran uh-huh. a meeting every day, five days a week, at the main office in Middletown for the managers. Okay. And we sit there and we go around. There was a eight eight to ten of us, uh-huh. eleven of us. We go around. Each person would talk about their situation for one hour. So the yard guy would talk about the yards. The mm-hmm. trucking guy would talk about the trucking. Oh, okay. uh, sales guy would talk about sales. At eight o'clock, the bell would ring. We'd run in our office and we'd get on the phone and start trading. We, every single morning we, at, eight, at seven o'clock, we'd have a morning meeting. Every, everybody really, would attend. Nobody missed credit, it. Who gets credit for that? A Wilbur Cohen idea? Was that a Don Zulanch idea? Who was the one that uh, championed well, that? I ran the Well, I ran the meetings, but okay. Ken Cohen was was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wilbur did not come in. He didn't come in until about 9, 9.30. Okay. But Ken, if I, if I was there at seven o'clock, Ken was there at six o'clock every morning. <laughs> he would, he would work 12 hours a day. Honestly, okay. he would. Uh, and that, that was part of why we were successful. Mm-hmm. He would be there at six o'clock in the morning and he'd work till at least six o'clock at night, every day, oh, every day, every day. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What uh, you mentioned the telephone, and obviously, you know, that's how did the business change in terms of the amount of time you spent in the telephone in the 1970s versus by the time it got to 2015? Was that still was that still the key sort of instrument, the key communication instrument for you? It was at the end, but not in the beginning. In the beginning, I had to go out and, and find the people that okay. were producing scrap yeah. that we could buy their scrap from. We couldn't call them, so we had to have a relationship. So the relationship was that I would go there, I would see them, I would talk to them. I would try to have them understand what we did Mm -hmm. and why we needed their product and why they needed us. Okay. And then at the end, you know, then there was communication by telephone. I went out less, I traveled less, Mm -hmm. uh, and I used the telephone a lot more. And we had secretaries, probably, you know, 15, 20 girls in the office that would help me tremendously, tremendously, okay. both on the computer, uh, finance, what I need to find, you know, I, I, half the time I didn't even know where I was. I, I needed the girls to help me and they did. And it was, it was a, they were a big, big help. So we worked as a team, mm-hmm. we worked as a team. Nobody stood out and said, I did this or I did that. Uh-huh. You know, we said, we've accomplished a lot today. Uh, we would say that at the meeting, we accomplished right. a lot today. It wasn't I, it was we. Okay. I never thought that I was up by myself. I couldn't do anything that we did by myself. Uh-huh. 
Okay. And yeah, that's, I guess that serves as a great way to reinforce that every morning, every day starts with that sort of a, a reinforcement of that kind of meeting. Every day, every day. Terrific. And in 47 years, I probably got snowed in two days in 47 years okay. that I couldn't make it to, to Middletown. That's and, a good uh, track record. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I think uh, I got docked those two days. They docked me, but I got over it. I got over it. But, uh, you know, I, I have no regrets. I mean, people usually don't stay 47 years at one job. They do not. And uh, yeah. And so, you know, I, I'm very fortunate. I have, when I look back, you know, the Cone Brothers made me what I am today. I really feel that way. I have a great life. I have a great life and uh, I, I don't regret one minute of it. How did your responsibilities evolve over those 47 years? You started out on that sounds like just chasing scrap, trying to get enough scrap into the into the yard. Right. Did that remain your core focus or did they, did, did the Cohen family at times say, well, Don, instead of doing that, we want you to do this instead. What, what were some other things you ended up doing? Well, the transition was kind of, you know, we, we were buying scrap and buying scrap and then, you know, somebody needs to sell it. We need to, to move it. And that was the important part. Okay. Everybody was paying about the same thing for scrap. Mm -hmm. But when you get, because of your relationships, a couple of dollars more or two dollars more and you could pay a little bit more, that was the important part of the business. So I transitioned from buying scrap to selling scrap. And I sold all the scrap for all our companies, all our yards at one time, everything. Okay. Was that Ferris yeah. only, or they they put you over on the non-Ferris side occasionally? No, early, early, early on, I did I did stainless steel, okay, and and, and copper and some, but that was early on. Mm. And as we grew, we had Ferris non-Ferris people that sold the copper. Okay. We had stainless people that sold the stainless, right. and I was the Ferris guy. I was oh, the okay. Ferris guy. So you've yeah, got the iron I, and steel in your blood. Yeah, and you know, I did it on my own. I didn't have a a, a department or crew. To, to do it and uh, I, I, I felt I felt uh, blessed I felt blessed to do it I did I how did. did you mentioned export and I don't think of southern Ohio necessarily as a place where you can easily export fair scrap how does fair scrap make it to the is it the east coast or the Gulf Coast when it's gonna when it leaves your the Ohio Valley region we did a lot of we did some China business we took it to okay. the west coast really so we okay. put it in railroad cars everything was done by railroad cars okay and we ship it to the west coast and goodbye it went to China I didn't even know where China was at the time <laughs> but uh you know and then we did some export to Turkey it went to uh New Jersey New York like right. rail car and they loaded barges for us and, and ships and it, it went over there okay. it wasn't it wasn't a big part of our business but it was a good part some yeah. of the low-grade items that we couldn't handle in this country, mm -hmm. they wanted in China, and right. we, we sent to China. Okay. And, uh, you know, some of our shredded scrap, we had a shredded yard, you know, right. went export. But, you know, we, we, look, we looked at both things, and it was a lot easier, as you know, mm -hmm. to keep it domestically in this country. But if it had to go overseas, then it went overseas. Yeah. Cohen, I think by percentage seems to do a little less shredding than maybe some of its other, some of the other large scrap companies in the U.S. Is that, you know, are there specific reasons for that or it's just sort of. Well, we're surrounded know. by, we're surrounded by shredders mm -hmm. and it's very, very competitive and uh, we don't have a huge big shredder. We have a nice operation. Right. Uh, but it got very competitive when we had our shredder in West Carrollton. 
right. which is 20 miles from Middletown, Ohio. Mm -hmm. It was one of the only shredders in, in the Miami Valley. Okay. But now with Cincinnati and, and Kentucky and, you know, the guys can pick up and take their cars to Cincinnati, which is 40 miles south and try to get a little more money. So that okay. part became very, very competitive. Very competitive. All yeah. right. Very so competitive. You, in your mind, it would have been, in the mind of the folks running the Cohen organization, it would have been, well, yeah, we could increase our volume, but the margin's just not good for, for more shredders. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we were competing with, with some large shredders and uh, it just, it, it just didn't, you know, it didn't work that we could increase our volume on a yearly basis. It, it just stayed about where it was and we were okay with that. Yeah. It was a smaller shredder, a smaller operation, and we were, we were okay. Late 60s, late 1960s, what was technology available at that point? I, mean, I take it you were doing a handwritten log on gasoline mileage, that kind of thing. Right. And uh, I don't know, what else, hand ledgers for accounting? That sort of, that's where you started, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, everything was, there was very little computers. I mean, right. we couldn't be talking like this in 1960. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it just, there was very little computers. So everything was done by hand. And that's why we needed good secretaries, good girls to, to help us. Yeah. So, you know, they would do the, uh, you know, the consulting, you know, with other people for us, but we would write down what we wanted to talk about. And they, they would help us get it out and, put it up public and all that but it it's completely different now business right. and communications is completely completely different completely yeah. different i was talking yeah. to someone about that the other day it's amazing how a you know a phone about this big how much that's is right. it, how that's much right. is in here it's you know it'd be like right. volumes and volumes of books that's <laughs> right and you know it's for the young people the young uh -huh. people i mean when i say young people we're 14 years old they know much more than i do about how to use a telephone and a computer they do no, and I'm okay. okay with that. They're 14. <laughs> yeah. So when they're 21, 22, 25, and in the scrap business, they, they can do anything they want on a computer. I mean, you know, it's just, it's amazing. So it makes, it makes it a lot easier because of the computer and right. you know, what we have now working for us. Mm -hmm. But we never, I never thought years ago, wow, this is very hard to do. I never thought that. No, never. What are some things that it's safe to say did not really change even over the course of 47 years whether it's you know i guess it's sort of the word values or the word or the sort of ways of doing business that you think stay have stayed consistent well the one thing and i, I keep talking about this mm -hmm. the one thing that didn't change is is relationships okay when we had relationships in the 60s and the 70s we could call somebody up and tell them what we need and ask them a favor and I think that went on forever. And I right. think today, even today, I'm not in the scrap business. I'm retired. I can still call the people that I dealt with and ask them for a favor, whether it's tickets to a ball game, whether it's let's meet for dinner one night, mm -hmm. I need a hug, something. So, you know, I, I think that's relationships don't change. Right. Prices change, people change, mills change relationships don't change. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, it's people would see you, you saw people move around to different companies quite a bit while you stayed in your same, in the same place. But the yeah. people, if they were good people, it sounds like you would find them or they would find you. 
what um what about for those listeners who aren't real familiar with uh southern ohio the ohio valley region what are some things that you may think make that part of the country distinctive whether it could have something to do with the scrap or it may have nothing to do with the scrap but what should we know about the, that ohio valley region well the ohio, ohio valley uh had a lot of a lot of dealers we had an ohio valley chapter we probably had when we had meetings, we probably had 60, 70 people come to a meeting. Okay. We had meetings every quarter. Right. So we- This we is the Esri chapter you're referring to? Yeah. So we had okay. a lot of meetings. Uh, when the convention came around, we'd always get together, the Miami Valley chapter and all our buddies, and we'd talk and have dinner. And it was it was a group. It was, a, yeah. although we were competitors, competitors, we were still friends and we all talked. There was no fights. No lawsuits, nothing like today at all. Mm. And, uh, you know, there was a lot, a lot of dealers. And again, right. we'd have a meeting, we'd have 60 people there. And uh, we would, you know, we'd talk and, you know, we looked forward to having those meetings. We looked forward to it. Yeah. Is that part of the country's sort of, would you consider it a scrap surplus region? Or are you are you sending scrap out, you know, outside the region? Uh, or is it kind of a pretty well balanced? The scrap that you processed, often it did not have to travel very far. You know what? I haven't been around for a while, but I think that it's it's we're setting material out of out of the region. Okay. I, I think I think uh, it it can move it can move a lot easier now. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know we got a system. We got trucking. We got railroad cars. We got you know we're close to the water. You right. know in Cincinnati. So. I, I think we can go any place we want. And the mills, the local mills know that. Mm. And so they have to be careful because <laughs> if they're not competitive, you know, it'll go, it'll go someplace else. It'll go, yeah. it'll go to Chicago, you know, it'll go to Indiana. Easy, very easy, very easy. So you, um, you mentioned, oh yeah. <laughs> go ahead. No, I'm sorry. You mentioned a couple of snow days, only two that, that, that you remember is not letting you get to the office. What, what, what sort of weather events might affect scrap flows in uh, in southern Ohio. Is it pretty much just well, snow you have to worry about? The we the weather was a big big factor, number one. Uh, you know, the Ohio Valley, we could get snow, we could get rain, we could get sleet. And so that would that would slow everything else up. Mm -hmm. The number two is railroad cars. At sometimes we could not get railroad cars. And at the end of the month when we had to finish orders and right. we needed 40 cars, we'd get 10 cars. And that wasn't good. And we would lose a lot of orders that way. So the equipment, even trucking, it was limited. Okay. So the equipment was a problem for us, not our equipment, but outside equipment, railroad uh -huh. cars, you know, and, and things like that, that we needed to move scrap. So we were limited to what we could do in certain months. Some of it was weather related. Some of it was equipment related. And uh, there was nothing you could do about it. You had okay. no control over it. No control. Uh, None. What was the Cohen organization's relationship with the demolition sector? There's, you're pretty active on the demolition scrap buying side. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, the demo guys, you know, those are, those were good relationships also. Okay. So they knew that we would bend over backwards for them. If they were working at night, we'd open our doors and they could, they could bring in a scrap in at night. Uh, yeah. We'd have somebody there weigh the trucks in. If they needed to be there, us to be there on weekends, we would be there on weekends. We would do whatever we could to accommodate them 
if everything was fair, they had to be fair to us and we were more than fair to them. Okay. And they realized that, that that was a big help and that we would do everything we could to keep them competitive. Right. Everything. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I take it there were some, probably some bittersweet projects, uh, demolition projects, uh, being an Ohioan myself, I know, you know, a lot of longtime facilities that during your career probably were taken down and you ended up buying some of that, that scrap of a, what used to be a proud and, you know, powerful factory around that part of the state. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, what it was specifically, but there were so many projects, so so much going on. Uh, again, when you're doing that much scrap, that many tons, right. you know, it's hard to vision to focus focus on on one specific thing. Yeah. And so we just we just did the best we could. Uh, you yeah. know, I don't know. You know, when you mentioned the demolition servicing them, you know that put in my mind the question. More than one recycler I'll talk to will say, well. People may drive by a yard and think we're sort of a manufacturing industry, but really we're a service industry. Is that sort of how you still look? You look back on your career and say, "Yeah, it was pretty much in the service business." Well, that's what that's what that's what buys your customers. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what buys your customers. It's 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 a hundred percent service. Okay. So when they need to move scrap, they need to move scrap. Yeah. You know, they're not going to say, "Well, he called me." And, I, I, I can't get a truck there, right. you know, we'll do it Tuesday. You know, it's all about service and taking care of your customer mm -hmm. and making them understand that you're doing everything possible that you can to, uh, to make them uh, happy. And that, that was a big thing. And again, it wasn't always price. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, the customer could be short a dollar or two for whatever reason, but they would still use us because they knew that we could handle their scrap and, okay. and, and in a manner that more than would pay the extra $2 or $3 that they would get from somebody else. Right. So if they would use somebody from Indiana and they had a three hour trip to pick up their scrap, that wouldn't work. We, we, we were the ones they called. Okay. Yeah, we were the uh -huh. ones, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Is, is that one of the things you think the Cohen organization got right? Because you'd said they, when you started, it was, five employees or something along those lines. And by the time you left, it right. was several hundred. So, right. but yet throughout all that growth, the service commitments sounded like they stayed in place. Well, we, 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 go, we go back to, yeah, the, the one, the R word relationships. Mm -hmm. So all our employees knew how important it was to take care of our customers. Right. If you don't take care of the customer, you lose them no matter what the price is. Yeah. If you can't service them, you lose them. You know, if you can't pay them, you lose them, uh, you know, so you, you have to do what, what's best. If we've had trucks that the gasoline would spill in somebody's yard, we'd have a crew there the next day or the same day to clean it up and to make it go away. We didn't ask them to take care of it. We took care of it. It was our fault. Uh -huh. And I think the people appreciated that. Okay. And again, it wasn't owned by a big mill. It was owned by a family. And... A lot of people, a lot of people wanted to do business with us because of that, because it was a family and the family was very charitable. They were very kind. Right. Uh, they supported a lot of projects in Ohio, mm -hmm. especially in Middletown, Ohio. They right. supported the school system, the city, uh, the hospital. Okay. Wilbur Cone was on every board there was, <laughs> every board. 
everybody in Middletown knew Wilbur Cohn. Everybody. Uh, right. That's everybody. Terrific. That's terrific. Yeah. 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 So what the, uh, big, the, please. The, big, the big change was, again, when Ken Cohn, Ken Cohn came in mm -hmm. to the business, uh, he he looked to uh, he looked at the big picture. Okay. And he said, let's let's have yard number two. Mm -hmm. Let's have yard number three. And then it was, let's have yard number 15. You know, I'm thinking, <laughs> oh my God, let's have yard number 20. And, uh, and then he, I think at yard number 23, he said, uh, no, let's, let's, let's just see what happens. Let's go with what we got right now. Okay. And it worked. It worked. Yeah. We had 23 managers. We had 23 yards. Uh, we had 23 operations and we, we ran them all from Middletown. It was all run from the corporate office. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's terrific. As someone who was selling scrap, you, for several years, you were on the selling end of things. How did yes. you stay in touch with the processing side? Because I'm sure that was important. You had to know what you were selling. What was, what was, what, what did, how did you, what techniques did you use to make sure you kept in touch with how things are processed? Well, first of all, I needed to know what their, what their sales would be for the month. Yeah. Everybody sells. So mm -hmm. we had of the 23 yards, we probably had six big yards that were processing yards. Okay. So I didn't have to contact the small yards because they would take the material to the processing yards. And the processing yards would then tell me what they had to sell for the following month. Oh, okay. And we had a form filled out how much shredded, how much number one heavy melt, how many tons of turnings. They didn't sell it no matter okay. what. I <laughs> sold it at a middle town. Uh -huh. And I, I put it together. I put all the yards together. So when we had 500 ton of turnings from one yard and 300 ton and 200 ton, I'd say, let's, I have a package now of 3000 ton of turnings. Mm -hmm. That's a good package. Mm -hmm. And I, I was able to sell it that way. So we had forms and I, I got them at the, uh, before the end of the month, I looked them over. I, uh, I prioritized what I needed to do and okay. we, we went in the market and the market knew what we had. The market knew that they, they needed to be kind and helpful to us also. They did. <laughs> sure. they, did. they did. How does yeah. uh, how does a company, once it has multiple locations, you know, how does a good organization uh, keep track of quality and make sure the quality at yard 12 is just as you know strict and careful as, as, as what's going on in Middletown? Well, First of all, if the quality wasn't the best, we would have a problem with the consumer. Mm -hmm. I mean, the consumer would say, you know, your, your five foot plate and structural is eight feet long. That's not right. You'd be the so first to would, know. You know <laughs> that's right. So, you know, that would be the first clue if, if we had a problem. I didn't go around to every single yard every single month looking at no. their scrap, but we depended on the managers to manage the yard and they knew and they, they were in the business. They weren't just, you know, new people. They knew that th their quality had to be good. And a lot of the yards that we, we, we uh, bought, uh, we, kept, we kept the people there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the guy that owned the yard was now the manager and he kept doing the same thing. And he, you know, it was a good yard before we bought it. It was a better yard after we bought it. Uh-huh, yeah. I see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And talking about the later stages of your career, Don, did you, in retirement, did you have a phase out kind of kind of a stage or did you just go from 60 to zero and just say, well, this is my last day and then it's, for me, it's going to be a lot of golfing or whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, 
about six months before I retired. I, I officially retired in December of 2015, December okay. at the end of the year. Okay. Uh, in June of 2015, I told uh, Wilbur and Ken Cohn I, mm-hmm. I'd like to retire. And they said, you know, give us a plan on what you want to do and how you want to do it. And so I wrote out a plan okay. about how and when I wanted to retire and phase down. And we started phasing down. And, uh, you know, we they, they knew that they were going to have to take over my operation. So for six months, you know, they would, we would do it as a committee, you know, uh, what, what I was doing. Okay. And, and everybody got comfortable with what it was. And then at the end of the, the year, they had a party for me that was the most unbelievable party I've ever had in my life. All right. They had people coming in, flying in on private planes uh, for this party. They yeah, had, this they is had, your life uh, party. Oh my God, this is your life. And they went over. They went over my forty-seven years. Oh, and we had. It was a party that I'll never forget the rest of my life. That's my whole. And that, that's how they were, though. That's how they mm-hmm. were. You know, mm-hmm. I never asked for a party. You know, <laughs> and uh, you would think that a family, you know, would just be kind of close knit. Right. and do what they wanted to do but that wasn't the case mm-hmm. they always asked on the phone uh you know what do you guys want to do what what do we need to do for you yeah they in the morning we put some of the yards on their morning meeting they weren't there physically but they were on the phone okay you know, what do we need to do for you and they would say look i you know, we, we're short people i can't get some oxygen you know propane is tight mm-hmm. uh, can you help me with this so we knew every morning what those yards needed Okay. And we would we would stand up and help them. Uh-huh. Yes. All right. Yeah. So Don, twenty sixteen rolls around, and now starting then and looking back the last few years, how would you grade yourself as a retiree? Did you have like a restless spell where you weren't sure if you did the right thing, or have you been enjoying retirement for the last four and a half years? Well, uh, three words. I always say three words. I'm living the dream. Living <laughs> okay. the dream. Living the dream. Good. I, I have a I have a house in Florida. Mm-hmm. And I'm there six months a year. I'm a resident of Florida. Right. I play golf down there. I watch okay. the sunset. Nice. I mean, we eat out. And then we come home in uh, May. And I do the same thing here. Terrific. Uh, watch, you know, I don't watch the sunset. It's hard. But I, uh, you know, I have buddies here. We play golf. I, I don't look back at anything. I had my career. Mm-hmm. I did very well. I did. I'm, 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 I'm right where I want to be right now. I'm right. I'm not a kid. I'm not your age. I'm right where I want to be right now. I am. That's good. That's great to hear. You, you've, you've been very, very consistent in saying you enjoyed all 47 years or most of the, most of what you went through in 47 years, you enjoyed it. It was a good career for you. What would you say to a, you know, a 22 year old comes to you and says, you know, Mr. Zulanch, I'm thinking about the scrap industry. Do you think it's a good idea? And if it is a good idea, what, what do I need to know to enter the scrap industry? Well, that's a, that's a tough one. I, I think that, you know, you, you need to know who you're going to hook up with, first of mm-hmm. all. I, I think some of these huge, big, big yards uh, operations, you might be a number. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that really works out. So you got to feel comfortable, with, first of all, what you do and who you're working with. Right. And every, everything's on an individual basis. You know, I just can't say everybody should go into the scrap business or shouldn't go into the scrap business. Okay. But there are opportunities for young people to go in, to stay with it and have a career, very successful career. Right. And uh, 
I, I, I did it. They can do it. I'm not special. <laughs> I, I'm not special. I, 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 everybody can do what I did. They just have to have the patience and they will have to want to do it. They have to want okay. to do it. Yeah, okay. the, the mo motivation is a big part. You have to be motivated to, to, to do it, you know, to be a part of it. Yeah, you know, stick do with you it. you think the good family recycling businesses, are they, they having a pretty good job, doing a pretty good job of that? Are they finding young folks to, to start careers in the scrap business? I don't think a lot of young people are going into the scrap business no. anymore. I don't think they understand it. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, a lot of the steel mills right. own the scrap uh, scrap yards, and they're being influential on what they do and how they do it. And so, a lot of the scrap yards don't have their own say. They listen to the they're the bosses, which are the mills, which is okay, which is yeah. fine. But it's not like it used to be. Okay. And e even the uh, scrap yards that aren't owned by the steel mills are owned by big big corporations that have you know, multi, multi yards and they're huge corporations. And I can't say it was like me, a family business anymore. Right. They're not family businesses anymore. They're big corporations. So your message yeah. to that 22 year old is find a family business and find a, find a good family business. I, I would find a, a business that, that was, he could work with and he could grow up with and, and grow and, and grow strong and, and yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it's not it's not for everybody anymore. It's no. not for everybody. Most people don't understand it. Right. And uh, you know, when I sometimes I say I was in the scrap business and people say, Oh, I'm sorry, you know. You know? Oh no. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. So they don't they don't understand it. They don't well, understand it. This is the scrap show. So the people listening to you, I think, will understand it. And I, I think yeah. they're all I think they're all really glad to hear your story because 47 years, the same company. And a career where you you look back with fondness, I think that's that is living the dream. And I I, I hope those I hope we have listeners that are able to live that same dream. Thank you. I think I knew you for uh, maybe thirty of those forty-seven years or so. About right, and, twenty. Uh, yeah, I've been to twenty-two yeah, years and myself. You were you were a good guy, a good publication. I we always always looked forward to being with you and talking to you and seeing you at the conventions. And so you're still a good guy. I appreciate you're still a good that. Guy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna yeah. let that compliment serve as our, as our conclusion because I'm, you know, gonna have a big head. It's not gonna fit in this office if I'm not yeah. careful. So I'll, I'll take that compliment and shoot it right back at you, Don, and say it's been a pleasure to have you on the Scrap Show. It's really Thank been you. fun to catch up with you, and I'm glad to hear you're doing Thank well. You. That you are Thank living you. the dream. That makes me feel good, and I hope that uh, it makes you. our listeners feel good too. Thank you. Good luck to you, and thank you for this opportunity. Our pleasure, Don. Goodbye. Thank good you. luck. Take care for now. Goodbye. Yep. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.